Morning, everybody. How you guys doing? I'm going to drink a little bit of water. I had a, somewhat of a cough this week, so bear with me if I have to stop and drink. Yeah, H2O, am I right? All right. That will be my only, <laughs> my only joke this morning. All right. Anyway, thank you for being here. It's so awesome to worship with you guys, to get into God's word together. And honestly, props to all of you who braved the snow and the cold to get here this morning. So uh, it's awesome to be together. We're going to continue our series on the book of Mark. We've been reading through that so far this semester. And as we get into chapter three this morning, I want to kick off, as I often do, with a question for you guys. That question is, when was the last time you were genuinely taken off guard by Jesus? When was the last time you read his words and found yourself genuinely surprised by what he was saying? Another way to put that is, how often do you allow Jesus to offend you? It's a question I started thinking about recently as I read and prepared for today. Especially in the passage we're going to read, it seems like Jesus was constantly shocking and challenging people everywhere he went. And I thought about how his disciples also seemed to spend most of their time shocked and surprised at his teachings and his way of life. And then last week, I was listening to an old Spotify playlist from a friend, and this song came on that I think puts this idea perfectly into words. I'm not sure if anybody here listens to Gable Price and Friends, but they have a song called Heretic, and it caught my attention immediately. And it starts like this. I think the lyrics are going to be on the screen there. It says, You are the empire, the promised land beneath my feet, the contrast that offends my firm theology. We tried to fit your ways in the boxes humans made, so either you're a heretic or you're the son of God. And then as the chorus begins, the prayer that repeats throughout the rest of the song is this, Oh, offend my mind so that I can know you more. And that really hit me. How often is that my prayer in life? Offend my mind so that I can know you more. I thought about how often do we come to the Gospels actually expecting Jesus to surprise us or to reveal himself in a way that actually pushes our hearts to change from their current state. It definitely seems like that's pretty much how everyone in the Gospels experiences him. So if we come to the Gospels and we don't expect the same, why not? 2,000 years have passed since these books were written, but if we're honest, humanity's basic spiritual needs and struggles are the same as they were then. Many of our common cultural assumptions and priorities aren't actually that different from those of ancient Rome. We live in the biggest empire in the world, just like they did. We wrestle with selfishness and wealth and anxiety and sexual sin, judging others, the scramble for power or control or security in a world that often feels uncertain to us. And I think we need Jesus to challenge us and our hearts and our priorities within his church just as much, if not more, than anyone outside the church needs it. And some of us might find that obvious, but I think it still bears saying, because I feel like in the last 10 years or so in wider Christian culture, most of the conversation I've heard about Jesus being offensive has been from people online creating reasons to mock each other. The thought process seems to go something like this. Jesus offended people, so I'm just imitating him when I'm being offensive, which, you know, cool leap of logic there. But I genuinely believe that that kind of crap actually breaks Jesus' heart because it disregards what we actually see in Scripture about who Jesus offends and how he does it and when and what about. 
Because yes, he does announce the coming of a new kingdom, a radical way of life that does often shock or offend or threaten the assumptions of the people around him. But his starting point in every case is not disdain for people, but instead God's burning compassion to heal and to redeem and to restore. Jesus' approach, as we're going to see this morning in Mark 3, was to challenge humanity with the overwhelming goodness of God. Goodness that demands people's response. So I think miles and miles before the church at large is ready to speak truth boldly in the public square, I think we need to stop in our tracks and ask ourselves if we have let ourselves be properly offended by Jesus. Which is why I think it's perfect we're reading the book of Mark, right? It's a book full of Jesus' radical ideas and a wide range of responses that people have toward him. And most importantly, as we open chapter 3, I want us not to just see ourselves in the disciples when we read the Gospels. I want us to see ourselves in the religious leaders and the Pharisees, or see ourselves in his family members who thought he was out of his mind. Because from the way Mark tells the story, I think we're supposed to resonate with some of those responses. He doesn't really do a lot of explaining or narration or tell the readers what to think in his gospel. He simply presents Jesus' good news and other people's reactions in a way that invites readers to see themselves in those reactions. He's not telling a story about a bunch of people who don't get Jesus like we do now, right? He's inviting us to see ourselves in the moralists, the religious leaders who respond with frustration and offense when he challenges their traditions, or to see ourselves in the overfamiliar, his family, who marvel at how impractical or out of bounds his ministry seemed. So as we open the Bible together this morning, I want us to take Mark's invitation and come in with a posture of re-examining our own personal responses to Jesus. Let him offend our minds so that we can know him more. Let me pray for us real quick before we start. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for coming to us in Jesus and challenging our assumptions and showing us your heart, showing us the way that leads to life. And I pray this morning that we would let that way that leads to life get into our hearts and upset us and offend us where it needs to and shake us away. I pray that we would experience you this morning as we get into your word. In your name, amen. So, as we dig into Mark chapter 3, right out of the gate, we're going to see Jesus partaking in one of his most common activities, which is to challenge moralistic people to embrace the dynamic power and compassionate heart of God. It's kind of a mouthful, so it's on the screen as well. But he challenges moralistic people to embrace the dynamic power and compassionate heart of God. And we're going to see that as we read Mark 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. All right, so if you're familiar with the Bible or grew up around church, you might be familiar with the group he's challenging here. But either way, I'm going to kind of paint the picture. These Pharisees, essentially these are the pastors and theologians of Jesus' day. 
They're often portrayed when we talk about them maybe in Christian culture as power-hungry rule makers who kept the people under their thumb. And there's absolutely truth to that, right? They're portrayed that way sometimes in the Gospels. But I also think flattening them into pure villains is a barrier to us seeing ourselves in them. So I want us to remember as we read this, most people do what they do, not out of malice, but because they believe that it's the right thing to do. I'll put it another way just to kind of help us get in their shoes a little bit. From their perspective, Scripture clearly taught something. In this case, that doing work on the Sabbath was wrong. The Bible said it. All their best theologians agreed on it. Their tradition supported it. To them, a rule was a rule. This new rabbi doesn't just get to come in here and start changing everything, no matter how nice it might seem to heal somebody on the Sabbath. They had to protect their congregation and stand up for what's right. But in the midst of that, breaks in the eternal logos, right? The word of God made flesh in Christ, and his message to them, for all their rule following, is not well done, good and faithful servants. Instead, his message is, you hard-hearted people, your interpretation of God's word is now a barrier to you doing God's will in the world. Your supposed faithfulness to scripture is getting in the way of you doing good in the world. And that's kind of a wild claim, right? Those kind of phrases might even set off some like alarm bells in your heads if you're really into your theology, but that's my point. This is how they would have felt as Jesus said these words. And that's why later in the passage they even accuse him of doing the work of the devil. And of course, it's important to note Jesus doesn't actually condemn the Sabbath here, right? Or dismiss God's commandment to rest. Jesus is God. The commandment to rest is from him. Instead, he's angered and distressed that they love their own certainty about the law more than the man right in front of them. Jesus simply refuses to let humans use his law as an excuse for passivity about their neighbors. And he does what he always does with people who fall into that kind of moralism. He redirects their definition of what is good from following all the rules, which, right, that seems pretty simple and pretty clear, to instead what is good is displaying the kingdom through the power of the Spirit, even if it upsets the status quo, which that last one sounds a lot more complicated, right? But that's also part of the point. His work is not simple or static. That's why I said before, he challenges them to consider the dynamic power and compassionate heart of God. Dynamic power because moralism tends to dull one's ability to expect something new from God. And compassionate heart because moralism tends to blind you to the actual needs of your neighbors. And Jesus preaches the opposite of all that. He is a new movement from God whose actions are consistently oriented toward the needs of the men and women around him. He portrays his message not through some grand sermon, but through healing a man in need in front of them and lodging it as a challenge against anyone hard-hearted enough to be mad that he did that. It's a really intense word, but he also knows that they need one because he knows that no one is harder to, read, to, to reach than a religious person who's convinced that they're right about everything. So in Christ, God himself has come to those religious people to reassert the fact that the law or their traditions or their piety, none of those things are the cornerstone on which to build their foundation. He is. Just like we've been talking about all year with our cornerstone theme. He's putting that message right here in scripture for us too. So his people can come back to it again and again because he knows 
that we're also not that different from the Pharisees. Every generation of Christians has had their blind spots or their own versions of moralism that tempted them to lose sight of the heart of God. Every generation needs that shocking goodness of Christ to wake them up and bring them back to the true cornerstone. And I think this week of all weeks, we had a perfect reminder of this, right? As we celebrated the kingdom work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on Monday. He was a man who, much like Jesus, was reviled by most people at the time and killed for his ideas. But in his writings, he echoed the ideas of Jesus in Mark 3 as he confronted moralistic Christians who used the Bible to support or stay silent on the evils of systemic injustices, both racial and economic. And he said this, If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning to the 20th century. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? King's challenge from our not-so-distant past is a visceral picture of just how urgent it is for God's people every time we open up this book to let him shock and offend our own moralism, draws back to the power and the goodness of God. And so I want to ask you guys this morning, do you feel your own need for that this morning? Do you need drawn back to the power and the goodness of God? Whether maybe on a wide social level like King spoke about, all the way down to the intimate invisible level of each of our hearts. Do you need to be shaken out of moralism this morning so that you can fall in love with Jesus again? Are there ways in your own life that you've started to love being right more than becoming like Jesus? Or has that love maybe faded away a little as you keep coming to church and living by Christian morals because it's what you're supposed to do? A bunch of checkboxes that you never examine or reconsider. We people of faith need Jesus to shake us out of our self-righteousness and our self-judgment. And I say that last part because I'm not just talking about people who are prudish or prideful, though I know many of us might struggle with that. I'm also talking to you who know the gospel but still live every day like God's mad at you or only wants to bless you if you stay inside the lines, like you're one step away from losing his love. I just want to tell you that voice is not from God And he needs to be told that he's a liar. Jesus wants to offend that part of you. To surprise what is lacking in our love with an earth-shattering kiss. And that is good, good news. And that good news isn't just for moralists, right, who fixate on the rules more than loving people. It's for more than that. So we're going to keep going this morning in Mark 3. See how Jesus also challenges people who already think that they know his message because they already think they perfectly understand him. We're going to see that aside from the moralists, he also challenges those who are over-familiar with him to see him with fresh eyes. Jesus challenges those who are over-familiar with him to see him with fresh eyes. And the next group we see in Mark 3 is a little bit different from the Pharisees, right? They disliked Jesus because of his challenges, but instead, this group are so comfortable with Jesus that they weren't expecting him to challenge them with anything new. And I think we can all relate to that a little bit, right? That feeling when you're so used, used to a person that they can start to become a little bit mundane to you. It's a classic trope of relationships, right? 
whether romantic or not. You idolize your first impression of somebody or the early parts of the friendship, and you even try to maintain that illusion for a little while while you're in the relationship. But one way or another over time, a few different things can happen. You can perhaps stop noticing or take for granted the qualities that first drew you to that person. Maybe if you over-idealize them, you could end up resenting or disliking them if they end up not being what you imagine them to be. But there's also a third option. It's the one where you expect to be surprised by them, to learn new things about them, to celebrate the depths of who they are. And that's where real love happens. But that option takes work. The willingness to be surprised, to reckon with what's difficult, to try and keep fresh eyes for those things that seemed so revolutionary at first, even if you're used to them, and now you see them every day. And I think that's the kind of relationship that Jesus is calling people to consider throughout the Gospels. We've already seen it in the religious leaders, right? People who were so familiar with God's law that they couldn't recognize him when he was standing right in front of them. But later in Mark 3, we see another group of people who's so used to only seeing him in one way that they would just want him to calm down and stop causing so much commotion, right? Because after confronting the Pharisees, Jesus goes out into the community and causes another kind of trouble. We're going to read about that here, starting in Mark 3, verse 8. When they, the common people of the area, heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. For sake of time, we're going to skip a few verses down to verse 20, where we see this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now, I referenced this passage last month when we explored Mary's journey as a disciple. And the central thrust remains the same, right? Mary knows Jesus is the Messiah. She gave birth to him. She heard that announcement. And whether they believe it or not, her sons, she also taught them that he was the Messiah. But none of them at this point could imagine that this is what the kingdom of God was supposed to look like, right? All these sick and hungry and needy people gathering around Jesus rather than the revolution, the military revolution they were expecting, right? So while their response might look a little different from the Pharisees, they still conclude, he's got to be out of his mind. What is he doing? And the funny part is, that's actually a pretty understandable reaction to Jesus, I think. He's defying the religious leaders and breaking all their religious codes. Not all of them, but breaking some of their religious codes. He's feasting with sinners and outcasts. He's healing the sick and even claiming to forgive sins, which is wild. He's drawing a massive crowd of riffraff around him, and his favorites among them are some uneducated fishermen, disreputable women, and a tax collector. And if these things don't shock and surprise us, that might be a sign of our overfamiliarity with the story. I want us to become wary of becoming so familiar with Jesus that what he does doesn't surprise or challenge us anymore. For instance, just one example, right? When was the last time you were surprised that his disciples were fishermen, or that he picked fishermen to be his disciples. I grew up in the church reading the Bible. That always seemed just like common knowledge, or like, of course, right? He picks some of the fishermen to be his disciples. But a couple years ago, I was hanging out with a guy I met here. Uh, I'm a bit of an old fart, so he's not a part of our church anymore. He's moved away and got a job somewhere else. But when he was a freshman, 
I got his number at the first church service, and he texted me a few months later. We started hanging out. And there was one Friday night, he texted me. He's like, hey, all my friends are going out to party. I don't want to go. I need something else to do. Why don't we just go to Starbucks and read the Bible? I was like, wow, all right. <laughs> like, that's, that's shocking. I'm, I'm excited you want to do that. So we did. We went to Starbucks, just read the Gospels. I don't remember which Gospel it even was, but we're sitting there reading, and all of a sudden, he just goes, what in the world? Oh, my gosh. He just starts flipping out. He's so excited. I'm like, yeah, what's up, man? What did you read? He's like, were Jesus' disciples like fishermen and stuff? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, again, for me, that seemed like, of, co- of course they were. But for him, he was like, I thought they were like pastors or like super religious guys. They're more like me. They, they probably didn't know much about Jesus at all, did they? Or like about their religion? I was like, yeah, probably not. And to him, that was absolutely revolutionary. He's like, oh, Jesus chooses people like me to be his disciple. And that conversation genuinely restarted my fascination with Jesus. After years of mostly believing it was my role to help other people fall in love with him, this guy helped me fall in love a little more with Jesus by reminding me just how surprising he is. Do you relate to that need this morning? Do you need to be surprised? Do you need to be shaken out of your familiarity so that you can fall in love with Jesus again? And if that's you, good news again. That tends to happen a lot with Jesus, right? Because the way he replies to his family is the perfect answer to the questions you might be thinking at this point, right? Questions like, well, what do, what do I do then, right? What is the right way to do the Sabbath? How do I participate in what Jesus is doing? How do I wake up from moralism or overfamiliarity or, heaven forbid, both, right? But I think the desperation of those questions is part of the point of his offensiveness, right? He wants us to be asking those questions. And he follows all of that with a call that's far more gracious than a new list of rules or to-dos. It's a far better calling, but it's also not an easy one, right? He calls us to trust. He calls us to stop our running and our striving and just challenges us to sit with him. Jesus challenges us to sit with him. How often do we sit, right? We see this in the way he responds with his family when they come to confront him about his radical actions. Read with me how he replies here, starting in verse 33 of Mark 3. He says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's incredible, right? Like any rabbi of the day, people sat at his feet to learn from his teachings, but here he does something new. He calls these people his family. And he declares that the doors to that family are wide open. At the end of this passage full of people who are frustrated at Jesus or offended by him, he offers this definitive invitation. He says, come, be a part of my true family. It's a beautiful picture of God's disposition toward humanity. Come, be a part of my family. And it shouldn't surprise us, this invitation is no less radical than anything else he said in this passage, right? The strongest communal identities of the day came from either one's religious group or one's biological family. But throughout the passage, he's placed both of those categories into question. 
And he invites instead anyone who is willing to do God's will to be in communion with him. And this grace is Jesus' ultimate offense. The final word on Jesus' shocking good news in Mark 3 is this, that everyone is invited to lay down their moralism or their overfamiliarity or whatever else is holding them back and become a part of the family of God by sitting with him, learning from him, following him. This means that the moralists and the overfamiliar who challenged him in this passage are not condemned as irredeemable. We actually know from the Bible that so many people who were shocked or offended or frustrated or intimidated by Jesus' life and teachings ultimately did become a part of this family. The New Testament tells us that this new family included Pharisees. It included his mother and his brothers. Their fate was not sealed here in their initial reactions. And that also means that God's not done with us yet either. It means that God has immense grace for all of us this morning who are feeling like, oh no, I am the moralist, or I am the overfamiliar. Because we can see here in Mark 3, even when he's distraught with the hardness of people's hearts, he responds with compassion and openness, a call to wake up and repent, which is ultimately an invitation. He responds by shocking us with the radical goodness of God and asking, what are you going to do with this? To the moralist, he warns and invites, your obsession with the rules and your judgment of others and yourself, they're sealing off your soul from love. Come, sit with me, open your heart to my heart. To the overfamiliar, he warns and invites, if you're too confident you already know exactly what to expect from me, it's going to be really hard to teach you anything. Instead, sit with me, Open your mind to what I have to say. And to those this morning who don't really relate to either one of those, maybe you're more like the fishermen or the tax collectors, the desperate people in need of healing who don't really know what to make of Jesus, you might be in the most advantageous position to hear him with fresh ears this morning without all those preconceived notions. And his invitation to you is exactly the same. Come and sit with me. It's the sitting with Jesus that he calls doing the will of God in this passage. The people who do God's will in verse 35 aren't defined by their rule following or their blood ties to Jesus. As we've been talking about all year, God's people are defined by making Jesus the cornerstone of their lives. They're defined by their trust, or what we Christians call faith. Those who sit with Jesus are admitting that they cannot transform themselves. And they're also basking in the joy of the fact that they don't have to. Instead, they sit at his feet and they believe what he says and they let him teach and transform them. And so that's my ultimate challenge to you guys this morning is this, and I think it's going to be on the screen as well. It's four things. To sit at Jesus' feet. To sit with him in prayer, if you're reading the book of Mark with us as the church this semester. The second part is listen to him like it's the first time. Pay attention to his words. Reread them. Write them down. Memorize them. 
whatever is going to help them get into your heart. The third part is embrace the discomfort as you read those words. Don't skim over things that sound difficult to understand or seem too radical or impractical for modern day life. Sit in the discomfort of the fact that he teaches his people to live in a certain way. And the last part is exactly that. Believe Jesus. Not just believe in Jesus, not just trust him with our eternity, but trust him with our today. Believe what he says. Let him change your mind. Let him call you to turn and believe the good news, which includes everything that he said. Especially if you feel like you've been living in some sort of spiritual cruise control this morning, which can happen if you're in that moralistic or over-familiar space. The gospel of Mark's invitation to you is exactly this, to gaze into the goodness of Christ and let it shake you awake. So let's do that together this semester. As we finish up this morning, we're going to follow another practice that Jesus gave us and obey him in this way. He gave us a practice by which to remember him, to remember his sacrifice, to remember the goodness and the radical love of God. So on the night before he died, his last supper that he had with his disciples, he took bread and he took wine and he gave it to them. And when he gave them the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the wine that they were drinking and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink it and do this in remembrance of me. And every time we do that as a church, it's a symbol and a reminder of not only the sacrifice he made, but the radical goodness that should really shock us every time we think about it. It's why we have these visceral symbols, right? Not just remembering he died, but participating in that. Receiving into us this symbol, not only that Jesus died for us, but that he is within us. His desire is to transform us. And we do this together because we remember that in community, that's where that stuff happens. And so we're going to commune with him and with each other this morning by taking communion together. So the band's going to come up. We're going to worship the Lord with a few more songs. And during those songs, feel free to go back. The the tables for communion are at the back of each of these aisles. If you're gluten-free, those small cups have the gluten-free option for you there. And take this time to, to worship Jesus and to sit with him as you remember what he's done for us. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for revealing yourself to us through Scripture, through Christ. I thank you for calling us to sit with you, to trust with you, to not be in some scramble to perform for you, but to merely trust who you are, to believe the things you say. Thank you that that is your heart for us, God. And I pray that we can embrace that this semester, even just today, even this week as we go out of here. Let us live in that space of sitting with you, hearing from you, that we would be a people transformed into your likeness. Amen.